Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's pray. Father, we are going to open your word now, and we ask that you would ban and and, uh, forbid all error, that you would... uh, squash sin and um, inattention and uh, laziness and lethargy and you would turn our hearts intently towards what you say and toward the glories of your son in Jesus name, Amen we're going to look at Psalm 110 this morning and I'm already smiling because I think there's going to be so much in this psalm that if another person picks Psalm 110 later in the summer, they will be able to do an an entirely other lesson and not even overlap with what we're doing this morning. You guys probably know Psalm 110. It's it's familiar in a lot of, a lot of its phrases are familiar. You're going to know it. You're going to know some stuff out of it. Um, It's also a very unique psalm. Uh, the, the SDG crowd has been in a Bible reading plan all year, and we have come to a point where the Psalms, we've just about finished all the Psalms. I didn't look back because they're all scattered about in, in the plan. We've just about finished every Psalm at this point. <clears throat> and if you've read through them all in the last couple of months, you realize how unique this one is. Psalms, you know how they go. They, they tend to be uh, personal. Oh, Lord, I'm having trouble. Please save me, deliver me. Oh, Lord, uh, Israel is having trouble. Save Israel, deliver Israel. Or something like, we're repenting. and Or, you know, turn our hearts to make us repent. And there's just psalm after psalm with those kind of themes. And then here comes this one, which is, is almost completely just prophecy. It's, it's uh, not what you'd expect <clears throat> and let's just get a feel for it by reading it out loud here. 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, as you read it, and especially again if you're, if you if you've been in the Psalms a few in the last few months, the one it most the kind of Psalm it most closely resembles is the, uh, and I didn't write down the numbers of these, but there are certain Psalms that extol the King of Israel, right? There are, there are Psalms where it says the King of Israel is glorious, the King of Israel will smash his enemies. Uh, Psalm two comes to mind and. And, and other ones. And so you're, you're not totally sure what to make of those. 
did the did David write them about himself or what? And and but mostly there's just there's just a, a genre, maybe four or five that's that talk about how great God's king is. God's king that he has installed on Zion. He's going to uh, discipline the nations and so forth through the king of Israel. But this one really takes off in a different direction, even from that. And one, the thing he does that we're going to spend most of our time on is he introduces two characters that are just coming out of nowhere uh, in terms of a psalm. And the first one is in the first verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the question is, who is this my Lord person? It's a psalm of David. It says that right in the title. And if, if you've uh, read any reference books, you might hear sometimes that um, these headings are not part of the inspired text or they might be just guidelines. But in this case, Jesus himself refers to this psalm and says David wrote it. So let's go with that. It's a psalm of David. And he writes about this mysterious person, my Lord. And uh, I guess we should stop for a minute. Everybody knows that Lord, all in caps, is the name of God, right? That's Yahweh. And then Lord, in small letters, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means basically Lord. So this is, this is Yahweh, says to my Adonai, my Lord, uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so David is, speak, it's a, it's a character we can't quite imagine who, who it is. Of course, if you're familiar with your New Testament, you kind of know who this is, right? But um, nevertheless, out of, out of the context of Psalms, it's a mysterious character. But it gets weirder in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so there, there's the other mysterious figure, and we're going to spend some time on him. But let's see if we can identify this my Lord person just by his attributes in the psalm. I'm just looking straight across the text here. He surely is a king, right? It says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Who has scepters? That's kings. So he's a king. He rules. Uh, he, he, it says rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what kings do. He has a people. Your people will offer, your, offer themselves freely on the day of your power. He's commissioned. Um, in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion and gives him a commission. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And he's also commissioned with an oath in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. But he's not just a king, he's a priest. You are a priest forever. And that's, that should raise a lot of questions in our minds. What, is this, what's, what do you mean priest forever? That's not a thing. Priests are human and they die. And um, so immediately he's, he clarifies, if, if you can call it that, because he makes it more mysterious. He clarifies by saying you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek not a priest of Levi and Aaron, of their family. But going back to the, this Lord, he also executes judgment on the nations in verse 6. He scatters their chiefs, the chiefs of the, of the nations, 
And he drinks from the, in verse 7, he's very triumphant. He's drinking from the brook. He's doing what kings do when they're finished executing judgment. When they're finished with a battle, they drink and they lift up their heads for the next battle. So he's a lord. He's, and David calls him my lord. And, but, he, but otherwise, there's, there's some problem as to identifying this person. But we have the clue, don't we? The clue is Melchizedek. That's our. That's going to be our clue. We're going to go straight. We're going to go as if we only have the Old Testament for a minute. Who is Melchizedek? Anybody want to? Anybody just already know and wants to inform us? King of Salem. King of Salem. Where does he come? Where does he show up in the Bible? Genesis fourteen. Genesis. Hey, Genesis fourteen. Yeah. In fact. Where, where does he show up in the Bible only? And that's Genesis 14. He comes, what? And, and the New Testament, okay. So he comes out of nowhere in Genesis, and we'll see that in a minute, we'll turn there. And then, what's that, 1500 BC or something? And then it's 500 years later, for no apparent reason, David, by the Holy Spirit in prophecy, mentions Melchizedek. He has never... It's not like this is a recurring character. It's not like this is your favorite sitcom guy that sort of shows up, you know, episode after episode. Oh, Melchizedek. I know him. No. If if you're reading the psalm in David's time period, you're like, Melchizedek, what are you talking about? So, let's find out. Let's go to Genesis 14. Who is this guy? We all have a little bit of a... If you're like me and you, when you were a kid, you started the Bible 17 times and never finished, you probably made it to Genesis 14, and you had this story of the, of the kings. Um, so Abraham, remember, or Abram in this time period, is um, becoming a major character. He's a, um, he's a chieftain of some sort. He has many men and you know lots of animals and lots of... A tribal, I guess, a tribal kind of a guy with with a big uh, army of of servants, and so this thing happens in Genesis 14, which we won't spend much time on. These five other kings band together and they make war on Abram and his crowd, and they uh, kidnap, in fact, Lot and several other people and lots of lots of loot, and they take it on. So one guy escapes and comes and tells Abram in verse 13, and he gets his people together, 318 of them. These little five kings must have had small, this is small kings, I think. But he gets 318 of his chosen people and goes after them, and he defeats them north of Damascus, and he brought back all the possessions and also brought back Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. And here's where this starts. After his return... 17, after his return from the defeat of, I'm going to say, Keter Laumer, I'm not going to say that's the pronunciation, but whatever his name was, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So here's the guy. He's Sodom, by the way, is an ally of Abram's at this, at this point in time, so don't get, don't get worked up about Sodom too much. But 
any rate, they're all... Abram's got all their stuff. He's got all the people. He's got all the stuff. Sodom comes out, um, and they meet at Salem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's, those are the key uh, parts of this story that Hebrews is going to pick up on. But we'll go ahead and just finish up. Um, the king of Sodom says, give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. He's trying to be polite. Abram, though, I kind of get the feeling he sees Sodom for who they are. He says, I don't even want your stuff. I'm not going to take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So he's, um, Abram says, I'll, we'll just, you just take your stuff back. I'll take my people and my stuff and I'll, we'll, uh, we'll, write, we'll write off all our expenses. But that's it. There's nothing else. There is no more Melchizedek. He just disappears uh, and into history. So let's see what we know about him. What do we see? He's king of Salem. Everybody thinks that Salem is Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going by the scholars here. Salem, Jerusalem. It's just, it's just an, an early name for Jerusalem. And he's also priest of God Most High. And, he's, and Abram does not contradict him. He doesn't say, away with your Canaanite gods or something. He, he accepts the blessing. He eats bread and drinks wine with Melchizedek. It appears from all we can see that Melchizedek is worshiping the true God. And um, that's all we know. There's just no information to go on. But um, he, he has no family it doesn't say Melchizedek, son of, which almost every Old Testament person is identified by their family. There's nothing like that. There's no birth date. There's no death. He just appears and disappears. And so that's what makes it so weird that he comes up in Psalm 110. He's never mentioned again until that song. And the one speculation that I thought was interesting, but there's no proof of it, is that Maybe David wrote it, this is a, by, by human, uh, for human reasons, not the Holy Spirit, but humanly speaking, it may have been written at the time, you remember David conquers Jerusalem. He has that time period when he has to actually take Jerusalem and make it his own. And uh, it's, it's possible that he thought, oh, hey, Melchizedek, one of our uh, ancient, um, you know, ancient brothers in the faith was here, he was priest here maybe that inspired him a little bit to think about Melchizedek but it's such a, it's such a mysterious prophecy, it's probably better to just say it's the Holy Spirit there's no, human, there's no human reason why he should have brought up Melchizedek now, is all this important? that's, a, that's like a high school question you're supposed to say, like, Jesus, or something like that. <laughs> yes, it's very important, right? 
the psalm is crucial. I'm uh, listen. I'm not even. This is why I say somebody else could teach Psalm 110 again this summer. I'm not even talking about the sit at my right hand part. Do y'all know that entire branches of New Testament thinking are based on verse one? When he says sit at my right hand, all those places in the New Testament that you've seen where they say you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God or what is it, Stephen, when he's martyred, I see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And the, and the apostles go on to prove things from that. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's deity. He's, he's, he's majesty. Uh, so the psalm is incredibly important to the rest of the New Testament. But, but we just want to talk about the Melchizedek part. And so what does Jesus do? We'll get to Hebrews in a minute. But what does Jesus do with this psalm? Everybody know the, anybody know the story? You know the story. Somebody knows the story. He makes it a riddle, doesn't he? Anybody know the riddle? Anybody just not want to talk? <laughs> the riddle is, and he says it to the Pharisees. It's in um, Matthew 22, among other things. Matthew 22, 41. And, it's, and this is really the problem here that he poses to them that we, that we already saw. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Okay, and now this part doesn't come from Psalm 110. This is just from their general knowledge. As um, Jews of the first century, the, uh, you know what Herod thought. Everybody knows what they, they told Herod and so forth. But he asked the Pharisees, out of your general knowledge, the Christ is whose son? And they give the right answer. Oh, he's the son of David. Everybody knows that. And the Christ, of course, is another word for Messiah. So he's, he's saying to them, what in, in Israel's Messiah is the son of who? And, they get, and this is, if this is a game show, they got the prize. The son of David. But then he springs the little trap. He gives them the riddle. How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Quoting verse 1 of Psalm 110. And then if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So is, let this sink in. Um, David has already posed the riddle. He didn't need Jesus to help him. He's already given us a, a mystery because he says, this person is my Lord. And so how can the theology of the first century be true, which is that the Messiah would be the son of David, and also Psalm 110 be true, this Messiah is David's Lord. It's just not right. In ancient times, anybody who was your descendant was certainly not your lord. You were always superior to your descendants. You're, you're an ancestor. You're a revered figure. You're not, you're not calling somebody your lord if they're like your grandkid. Get my grandkids over here and remind them of that. So there's, there's the riddle. And you know the, you know the answer, right? 
The Pharisees could not conceive of this. But you know that it's because it's the human and divine natures of Christ. You know that by human descent, he was the son of David and was of the family of David. He was the legitimate heir. He was the king that was to come of the line of David. But by his divine nature, he was David's God. He was the Lord of all creation. And David knew that in the spirit and said, this Lord that is to come will be my Lord. I'm David, but I'm great, but he's much greater. And so he is my Lord. And, and that was very clear to Jesus. It was very clear to us. But the Pharisees thought it was an unanswerable question. And so they just shut down. But that's what, that's what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't mention Melchizedek, and we wanted to talk about Melchizedek. So let's jump over to Hebrews. And again, this guy shows up in just three places in the whole Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews. But Hebrews gets a lot of mileage out of this. So um, going into five, uh, Hebrews 5, 6, for instance, um, and that's kind of where he introduces the whole topic. He says, so I'll go back to verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. That wasn't, he didn't choose that himself, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which is Psalm 2. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he stops for a little bit and goes off in another direction. Um, how many of y'all have wrestled with Hebrews chapter 6 where he says, oh, it's impossible to renew to repentance those who have turned away from the faith in various ways. Oh, that classic passage is a whole, it's a parenthesis that we're not going to talk about. I'm just going to skip right over that hard passage <laughs> because that's not my point. He gets off the order of Melchizedek thing, goes off in another direction to talk about you, you guys should be growing and, and maturing in the faith and understanding hard things out of God's word. And his example is, hey, the priesthood of Melchizedek is what you ought to be studying. But he, but he, by doing that, he, he uh, sidesteps off into things like you need to repent and you need to stay faithful. So we're going to skip up down to 613 at least. It's, he takes it up again and he says, we need to study our Old Testament carefully. We need, anytime there's an oath, anytime there's a promise, anytime there's a prophecy, we need to stop and think and what the, what's it doing. So he gets into these, this oath thing. When God made a promise to Abraham, he swore an oath. And then when he, God wants to make him a a priest of Melchizedek, as a priest after Melchizedek, he swears an oath. So there's these oaths happening, and, and the author of Hebrews thinks that's important. So he, going on down into um, 
620, he, he says that Jesus, as high priest, has gone into the holy place behind the curtain, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is where he, he really gets into it. Seven, seven one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Y'all know the Hebrew word shalom, right? This is Salem. In, it sounds like Salem in Greek, so it's... But he's saying that he's also the king of peace. And then he... Then, then, if it wasn't weirder, if it wasn't weird enough, Hebrews makes it even weirder. Verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy. Okay, that's not so weird. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And that's where we would probably sort of draw the line and say, You're, you've gone too far. Just because a guy doesn't have a birth date or a death date mentioned does not mean he lives forever. But that's... That's not what really what the guy is saying. He's not really saying that Melchizedek lived forever. He's keying this off of Psalm 110 again. He's saying that if the Melchizedekian priesthood, is that a word? I'm going to say it. Melchizedekian priesthood, if, the, if, if one of the attributes of that is to be a priest forever, then that's what's going on here. He's not really getting that out of Genesis, although it's, it's fun that there's no death date. What he's really doing is meditating on the, he's crunching the data. He's meditating on everything Psalm 110 has added to this question. And God says, I've sworn an oath, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's the kind of priest we are looking for. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is to, is to tell these Hebrew Christians, don't fall away, the priesthood of Christ the ministry of Christ, the covenant of salvation given by Christ is ten times better than anything you think you need to fall away back into. Don't fall away into those types and shadows. Don't return to those Levitical priests that are still over there. I presume this is before the year 70 AD. They're still over there offering these daily sacrifices. He says, you've got a priest who is a forever priest, a Melchizedekian priest. And he wants to tell you, starting in verse 4, that this is a real important thing. See how great this man was, whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And, and this is, this, he doesn't think like we do, but this is great. The descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, they have a commandment to receive tithes. So he says, that's a priestly function. I'm a priest, I need a tithe, right? So I can offer sacrifices and support myself and do what priests do. And he says, but in this case, tithes were given to someone who was greater than Levi. Look at verse 9. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Do you all get what he's saying? Everybody gets what he's saying. I'm going to say it anyway. He's saying Melchizedek, it's, it's like a, I'm not going to use markers. Melchizedek, 
greater than Abraham because Abraham Abraham gives him tithes. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. The greater blesses the lesser. So Melchizedek, Abraham, but Abraham is greater than Levi because he's his ancestor. So he says in 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 reality Levi himself is paying tithes to Melchizedek. So Levi is showing by that that the Levitical priesthood is less than the Melchizedekian priesthood. And that Levi himself is going to admit that symbolically. So Melchizedek, he says, this guy that is only mentioned twice in the whole Bible is greater than the Levitical priesthood that you want to fall back to. So, which sets the stage for 11 through the end of the chapter. And it's just so, it's, there's, it's so rich I can't even describe it. And this is not a class on Hebrews, it's a class on Psalm 110. But if there was a prize for Bible scholarship, this guy would win because he mines the Old Testament for nuggets of gold. He says that if you had a Levitical priest, if you have a Levitical priest, that dies and has to be replaced constantly, then why would you ever think that your sins were forgiven? You've got this temporary person offering temporary sacrifices. Uh, Instead, you need a forever priest. You need a priest, verse 15, in the likeness of Melchizedek, who became a priest not on the basis of bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now, see what he's doing. He's tying the resurrection into this. He's saying, wait a second, that Psalm 110, it mentioned being a priest forever. And then at the end of the psalm, he lifts up his head like a guy who's never going to be conquered. Well, there is one guy like that. He was raised from the dead. He has the power of an indestructible life. And, it's, and he goes ahead and quotes the psalm, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he says it was with an oath. The Levitical priest's come to power by the law, by the prescriptions of the law, but they don't swear an oath. He says, the Lord swore an oath to this priest and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then he says, the fact that there's many Levitical priests, verse 23, is, shows that the, he's superior because they die, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's one of the most dear, dear verses in the whole Bible that I've never stopped loving. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that great? He just, he's just building this entire picture um, from two small passages, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. He's saying, he's saying, look, Hebrews, look at your Old Testament. Look at the prophecies that God has given you and and make your conclusions. Jesus is the one you need. Jesus is your Savior. How do you explain Psalm 110 any other way? Basically, the whole this whole these whole two chapters of Hebrews are a way of answering the question that we asked at the start of class, which is, why does this guy show up? I mean, that's all Hebrews is doing. He's he's saying, wait, in the light of the the death and resurrection of Jesus why did that happen in Psalm 110 why did that weird guy show up called Melchizedek 
God's trying to tell us something. God's trying to open our minds and our ears to, to really understand the beauty of this salvation. So the, th- the forever priest is what we need. The one who's sworn in by an oath, the one who lives forever, the one who um, is... Um, what, I lost track of where I was going. Uh, anyway, he has the power of an indestructible life. He's entered into the holy place, not the copy of the holy place, but the real holy place in God's temple to make intercession for us. And then we're and just just for one second, jump over to ten eleven, Hebrews ten eleven, where he makes his final argument coming out of this psalm. And it's and it's based on a verb. All you Greek students, it's based on one verb, right? Hey, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Not stand or not just hover, but sit at my right hand. And so Hebrews says in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. See that verb? He stands. And they offer the sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And where does he get that? Psalm 110. Jesus sat down because his work was finished. This is the final sacrifice that can take away your sins and my sins. So back to 7, chapter 7 of Hebrews, I mean. Um, I got to... I gotta, uh, I got to read verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted among the, above the heavens. If, you, if your prayer life is suffering, pray the scriptures. Just say, just go home and, and say, I, don't, I never had words, but God, thank you for a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There are worse prayers in the world than just to pray back the attributes of God to him and to thank him for our Savior in the words that he's given us. I love the King James translation right there. It says, holy, harmless, and undefiled, instead of unstained. But that's just because I grew up with old Bibles. Holy, harmless, and undefiled. That's the Savior we have. And so uh, most of us are pretty much hurting for anybody in our life to be holy, harmless, and undefiled, especially ourselves. But we do have a high priest that's always with us that's that way. Well, back to Psalm 110. I I pretended like this was a class on 110, and maybe it is. But it's by, by doing what, it's by going and seeing what the New Testament says about the Old Testament that we really get a true sense of the Old Testament. When the Old Testament, <clears throat> I'm sorry, when the New Testament gives us an interpretation of the Old Testament, that is its interpretation. And so we can, we can learn from what the apostles do, and we can go back to our Old Testaments, and then they become more rich to us. We understand what's really going on. And so there's a lot of comfort here. If, if we can come to this psalm and we, can, and we see somebody sitting at God's right hand, we can now know who that is. We can put our faith in him. And we actually show up in this psalm. I skipped 
talking about verse 3 and, and a lot of the other verses. But look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments <clears throat> from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Well, <clears throat> I don't know Hebrew, but I do know how to read footnotes. And if you read a, if you read a couple translations of this verse and you read all the footnotes, you'll realize that they can't agree what it means. <laughs> they don't know what the, the, the day of your power uh, could be um, on the day you lead your forces into battle. The holy garments could be holy mountains, it turns out. Um, so um, the dew of your youth, if in the ESV it says in the footnote, the Hebrew is uncertain. The meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. But there's one thing that's certain, and that's the first line that there's a people who are offering themselves freely. And the, the actual literal words are that the people are a free will offering. The pe- and that's us. We are a free will offering because God has made us willing. It says your people will be willing or your people will offer themselves freely. That's because God, he is, he's not just a, a priest, but he's a king who rules with a scepter. And he's not just ruling in order to crush enemies and destroy them. And we will, in some way and some time, praise God for that in a very holy and righteous way. But the kind of ruling and sceptering we need is when he rules over our wills and he brings us to himself. And every one of us who knows him can, can be thankful that our wills were overruled. Our, our sinfulness, God came in with powerful grace and turned our hearts toward him. And so he's, uh, in, and he's used many, many human means to do that. He's placed us in churches. He's placed us in families. He's given us some sort of random, uh, uh, random visit with some evangelist, whatever it was, but he's turned you towards himself. And that's Christ exercising his rule, his scepter over the universe, and, and is making his people willing. And then they come freely and in the day of his power and they offer themselves in holy garments. We are made holy. We're made righteous before him. And we're made, whether it's holy mountains or holy garments, his people do come in holiness because he leads them. Here's what the Net Bible says for that verse. Your people willingly follow you when you go into battle. On the holy hills at sunrise, the dew of your youth belongs to you. That's pretty poetic. And here's the NIV. Your troops, that's us, will be willing on the day of your battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. So you see how different people have interpreted this verse. But either way, it's exciting, I think, to be part of God's people, to, be, to have old-time psalms illustrated by New Testament apostles. And so, so that we can go back to these things and we can say, wow, I need a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I need that, needed that priest. I didn't know who he was before. I just knew who he was, David's Lord somehow. But that's, uh, that's the priest who is able to go into the true holy places and, and give the true offering that sanctifies us once and for all. Any comments on that? Any, this psalm part of any of y'all's life? Anybody want to offer any other other insights? 
Yes, ma'am. I've heard it taught that Melchizedek, Melchizedek was uh, a Christophany. Is yeah. That, what do you think of that? I skipped over that. Um, Back in the back corner, uh, the, cor the question was, some people teach that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate image of Christ, or that actual appearance of Christ, which would account for him saying, oh, he lives forever. Even, even the original Melchizedek lives forever. And then there's the theory that Melchizedek was actually Shem. Have you heard that one? If you add up all the years, Shem was probably still alive. And so uh, he could be... This is like the old Shem being the, uh, but um, I spent mo a lot of the morning talking about what was mysterious and what we don't know, and, the, and since there's no proof of those theories, I, I just skipped over them. We, there's so much we do know, but I, there's just no way to tell. Um, I did see one person, I think it was Calvin or somebody said, he scoffed at that because he said Melchizedek had to be a human, uh, but I, yeah, it's just a theory. Anything else? Yes, sir. I guess specifically on the you know, your people, is there uh, whether whether that's Israel, whether that's the church, whether that's just God's elect in general? Is there much study or disagreement on that? That makes sense. Um, it seems, to, it, based on some of these translators, it seems to be kind of armies, but um, it's, um, I didn't notice anybody going, going real far with trying to identify those people accurately. The, um, in, the in the context that it's given, where it's a king with armies, we have to just say that the image is armies and that these are willing soldiers uh, willing to follow the Lord and, and um, then it's, it's going to be up to you a little bit to translate that to do you think that's the whole New Testament church or you know some, some subset I, sorry I can't this reminds me of the um, of the joke where the, the theologian was being driven to a conference by his chauffeur and uh, they had done this he had done this speech so many times he just for a joke they they switched places because the chauffeur had the whole speech memorized and so he gave the speech and then somebody asked a difficult question and the guy says that's that's such an easy question I'm just gonna let my chauffeur answer it back there in the back <laughs> but I don't have a chauffeur so I, I just have to say I don't know I guess when it comes to this character, I um, my simple-mindedness begs the question, not that I can like argue with God, but like, why didn't he choose Melchizedek? In, like, why did he choose Abraham? Yeah. Right? When he had this obviously wonderful leader, <laughs> better, right, on the rest. And it makes me go, God, and just his softness and his beautiful storytelling and allowing us to participate and understand through the the humanness of the individuals in the Bible. You know, he chose the weaker person. He chose yeah. these people where we can relate to them and join into the family heritage. 
the family tree is made up of a bunch of weak people. Yeah. You know, um, Jesus's lineage, you've got Rahab, you've got people, all the kings mess up, you know? And we just kind of get to join into that, which is kind of a beautiful thought. I don't know why he didn't choose Melchizedek. Yeah. But Can you all hear this back there? I don't okay. know why he didn't choose him, but I'm thankful he didn't. Right. On some level, because we get to see the... the the story and, and like Revelation is talking about how the um, tabernacle like plays a po point in pointing us to Christ e even in the Old Testament and then here we are in the Revelation seeing it. I don't know. It just ties together so well when you have this beautiful yeah. story of the Bible rather than just like, hey, I got this awesome guy. He's the boss. I don't think Melchizedek's the point. I don't think we're supposed to look to him as the God. It's just a architect or whatever the old pointing us to christ again. if we didn't have psalm 110 melchizedek would have just been a footnote um but the th point you're making about abraham is absolutely fundamental um he's an idolater or his family is anyway and they make that point later in deuteronomy when they say you came from you you came from idolaters and um god and you're here you the family of abraham is strictly here by god's grace alone this really emphasizes grace. Yeah, it's all grace. Well, I, I hear the noises that say that our, some of our kids are, are being dismissed from class, so let's dismiss. And I really appreciate y'all's patience with an old-time guy. I haven't been in here since 2016 uh, in this class, but uh, it's really fun that it's this big, too. I'll see y'all later. Thanks.